Support comes from the San Juan Islands. Spring in the San Juans can provide time to slow down and savor the scenery of quiet beaches, hiking, biking, and whale watching on Lopez, Orcas, and San Juan Island and Friday Harbor. Learn more at visitsanjuans.com. Set your mind to island time. Welcome to Friday. Welcome to KUOW's Week in Review. I'm your host, Bill Radke. And I don't know how much you've been following the news this week. You might have been busy. You might have been eating Whoppers or Zagnuts is an excellent name for a candy. No one is eating Whoppers. (laughs) I'll tell you that. (laughs) Lemonheads. I don't know. But it's okay if you were not following the news 24 hours a day. You can get away with one hour if you choose wisely. And you have. You have a panel of local journalists here to catch you up on what happened this week. And you just heard the voice of GeekWire contributing editor, Mike Lewis. Hi, Mike. Hey, Bill. How are you doing? I'm good, but I, I kind of like uh, I kind of like Whoppers, so I hope I haven't fallen in your estimation. Yeah, uh, well, just a little. My apologies. We also have Seattle Times general assignment reporter, Amanda Zoe. Uh, welcome back, Amanda. Good to see you. Thank you. And I also like Whoppers. Excellent. Now what you're outnumbered. What is wrong with you people? <laughs> it's just uh, you dissolve them. Uh, it, you just eat them strategically. Kitsap's son, military and Bremerton reporter, Josh Farley. Where do you stand on Whoppers? Good to be with you, Bill. Um, I not only like them, I have eaten uh, untold quantities of them this week. Excellent. I am at the wrong party. Yeah. <laughs> uh, you can also join the party on uh, online. You know, we're streaming the show uh, on YouTube and Facebook, so you can you can watch it happen. So let's uh, get to the news this week. We officially entered the post-emergency COVID era in Washington state. Our governor's few remaining emergency measures expired on Halloween after more than two and a half years. In fact, KUOW's Paige Browning cast our minds back to the lockdown. The moment may be burned into the memory of Washingtonians. Two years and seven months ago, the day the governor issued a stay-at-home order. It is still safe to go outside using social distancing of six feet, but really only for essential purposes. Remember those days. Yeah. Uh, Mike, how did life change this week with the end of the emergency? I mean, honestly, for me, not much. It's felt like it's been the various restrictions and requirements have been dropping away. In fact, I was thinking about that on my way in to uh, KUOW today when I walked up and I came up to the reception area and I realized I didn't bring a mask. And I had masks stuffed in every jacket, in every backpack, in my car, in my motorcycle. Like I had masks everywhere. And I just realized I didn't, I assumed that I would have one somewhere around there. And that's kind of told me that I've made the, in some ways I've made the adjustment. I went and had um, a bite to eat with somebody, a a radio person from Cairo Radio Mm -hmm. uh, a couple of weeks ago. And we met at the bait shop in Capitol Hill mm-hmm. for a quick uh, for a quick beer. And uh, I had to show my vac- proof of vaccination to go in there. And you did. and I was again like I had to hunt through I had it. I had yeah. to hunt through my phone for it. Yeah. But it was again those things that are sort of the reminder of what how quickly some of this stuff dropped away for some of us. Yeah, employers can still require vaccines if they want to as you just pointed out. Uh, the UW my my employer University of Washington is requiring staff and students to have the first two vaccine shots but not the boosters. There's a federal vaccine mandate for healthcare workers uh, if the if the facility gets federal funding. So it's it's here and there. Amanda, do you want to add anything about uh, what it means to be in a post-COVID emergency uh, period in Washington state? Yeah, it really is here and there. When I was first reading about this, I was like, I had the same reaction, which is what what exactly is changing? 
Um, you know, I think it's interesting that some local agencies are choosing to keep on the vaccine mandate. Um, you know, I, I personally got my bivalent booster as soon as I could, but yep. you know, a lot of people haven't gotten them yet. Yeah, that's right. I think it's 16 percent of us. And it's a strange situation where I hear lots of people say, uh, get, uh, as, I mean, I got my booster. I hear lots of people say, I got, mine. I got my booster, get your booster. And then I hear lots of people, including KOW listeners, saying, I'm trying to get my booster. I can't get my booster. So I believe the, that, you know, those are realities for for every different person. But the bottom line is it's, a, I think, a 16 percent uptake so far. Josh Farley, you have anything to add here? I do. Yeah. Well, I just uh, hearing Governor Inslee, March 2020 felt like such a curtain dropping and the, remembering all of that and the fear and uncertainty. I think the end of the pandemic, if we can call it that, or at least the emergency part, is much more nuanced and much more layered. And there were a lot of things that were permanent. Uh, KUOW's Joshua McNichols reported, you know, of course, that the legislature didn't view the changes to, uh, you know, what happens to renters and their relationship with their landlords. Uh, you know, you have a longer amount of time to catch up on rent. You have mm-hmm. um, uh, the ability to seek grants from the government, re- rent relief organizations, uh, right to an attorney. Um, renters have, uh, uh, you know, I think a lot more clout in that relationship now. And that is not a temporary COVID emergency. That is something that the legislature codified into law. Right. In fact, Joshua reported, I remember that that uh, there we have not seen the wave of evictions that uh, some people had predicted we would. Uh, there's another pandemic support that is um, going away, and that is a pay bump, an emergency pay bump in Seattle for gig workers, food delivery workers. I feel like I was finally getting to a point financially where I was not completely drowning. Now that our pay is going to be cut in half, I'm going to start drowning again. That's Carmen Figueroa, who works with DoorDash. With hazard pay ending, Figueroa says she'll have to work more hours to make up the difference. It seems so trivial, $2.50, but to me, it's the world. Michelle Balzer fills and delivers grocery orders for Instacart. And Michelle says... Uh, Again, two and a half bucks, no big deal, right? But it's a lot. We're still dealing with high gas prices, and we are dealing with inflation across the board, especially in our groceries. The city's emergency order also provided sick time, and that is set to expire in six months. That sick time for me has been a godsend because it's really kept me afloat on the times that I've had COVID or have gotten injured and needed a day to kind of maybe rest my ankle or whatever. So we'll see. We'll see how this winter is, how cases do, how 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 uh, any possible recession affects all of this evictions and all of it in 2023. Um, anything uh, anything to add about this week's, I guess, milestone there? 80, you know, the vast majority of those emergency restrictions had already fallen away, but uh, we saw the end of the rest this week. I think that it's that it's going to be hard on the folks who received the essentially the hazard pay adjustment, right? Mm-hmm. Because it's it's easy. We all know this. It's easy to, to make the step into more money. It becomes in the, but everything then calibrates to that and then having to drop back. And, and I agree, like the $2 and 50 cents an hour may not sound like much to some people, but it's a tremendous amount. If it keeps you on that margin where you're not ever having to dip into maybe a tiny bit of savings or a payday loan or something like that, it keeps you like right above. Yeah. That's a hugely important thing. Cause once you dip below it, anyone who's ever been in that economic situation, 
it gets very hard to get back up over the top. Yes. And I think that that's what we're going to be running into as a result of the, the suspension uh, of the hazard pay. Yep, good point. Maybe maybe a last point on this is that uh, Governor Inslee faced some Republican pushback for keeping w- the orders in place that he did up until this week and and before that. Are, th- are you seeing any signs that that's going to hurt Democrats in this week's election? Have you heard? I haven't especially heard voters still talking about, you know, vaccine mandates, et cetera, but maybe it's not my bubble. To me, I, I don't I don't see any this being a major. I mean, this is not inconsistent with with what Jay has done all the way through the process. Right. And so the retaining of these orders a little longer, it is it's already put him afoul to some degree of the landlord associations. Right. Because right. they were very unhappy about this and felt like it was onerous to have these uh, moratoriums extend for so long. But those people already are unhappy, already unhappy with the governor. Right. So so there's nothing new that's going to happen as a result of this. I don't see it necessarily i don't see this issue necessarily being a big problem for democrats because it was already out there well finally public health officials are saying the same things they've always been saying please take all of the um, measures that you now know how to do so well and make sure that you're leveraging them to stay as healthy as possible you know please get vaccinated for both the flu and covid Make sure that when you are in enclosed indoor spaces, you are masking up. One more reminder there on KUOW's Week in Review. We've been talking about the official end of the rest of Governor Inslee's COVID emergency proclamations as of this week. Uh, you're listening to Week in Review, as I said, and let's talk about uh, another story this week. We learned about a run-in between Seattle police and King County Sheriff's deputies last year that has those agencies changing the way they do things. This is KOW reporter Amy Radel telling us about this incident that the then King County Sheriff said could have resulted in officers really hurting one another. What happened? This was last March, March 13th of 2021. Um, There were protests in Seattle. It was the anniversary of the death of Breonna Taylor, um, who was killed by police in Louisville the year before. On that night in Seattle, there were two King County officers, Detective Cyrus Bothorpe and his supervisor, Sergeant Pat McCurdy, um, and they were assigned to do covert surveillance as part of a team assigned to protect sound transit infrastructure. They were driving a leased white pickup truck um, and they were kind of circling the outskirts of the protest and they noticed another vehicle, a Nissan Rogue, that was doing the same thing. And Sergeant McCurdy thought that he recognized the vehicle and he believed it was connected to aiding the protesters somehow. So he and Bothorpe, who was the one driving, decided to pursue that vehicle and basically push it out of the downtown. Um, This is audio of Detective Bothorpe being interviewed by investigators later and and he explains what he was trying to do that night. An obvious overt fault. Just get right on their bumper like, hey, look, I am here. Leave. And if they leave and look like they're going to keep going, let them go. This is, of course, a violation of policy, not what officers are trained to do, especially because their vehicle was totally unmarked. No sign it belonged to law enforcement. No, They left their license plate off, which is another policy violation. The King County officers didn't tell Seattle police they were going to be working in Seattle that night. On and on. Um, Amanda, you I think you called this a rare glimpse into uh, how law enforcement works. Yeah, I mean, anyone who's ever 
reported on the police knows that the standard excuse is, oh, we can't tell you what's going on. You know, it's our it's our internal work. Um, so I thought it was really interesting, both that, you know, we got to see like how it works for undercover cops, like what, what are they assigned to do, what, what the policy is. Um, and then also I thought it was really interesting because, you know, when we hear about cops getting disciplined, a lot of that process gets hidden from us. Um, but I think because this was between two agencies, we got to see, it, it sounds like there was quite a lot of material that was made public. Yes, between two agencies. And my understanding is because the supervisor of the of the two, the King County officers, didn't even report this to his bosses, they found out about it because Seattle police happened to call them about it. Um, who Who else wants to react to this josh well i i see two big problems here um as i've been following the story and someone who's covered uh crime and justice and the police in kitsap county for for a few years now um uh, i think the first thing is just the systemic nature of this that in you know king county seattle these are overlapping jurisdictions should have been on top of this Anytime a search warrant happens or another law enforcement action of some kind, you have communication beforehand. You want to ensure the safety of all involved. And this could have been this could have ended very badly, clearly. Um, secondly, you know, I think there is plenty of blame here, though, when when you zero in on the situation on on the King County deputies um, at I think. At, at best, it's not following orders. At worst, it's a dereliction of duty. Simple as that. They had they were ordered to protect light rail stations. That was their job, and they operated outside of that. Yeah, that was one of the violations. They uh, they they changed the mission. Well, and, and to to add on to what what both uh, Josh and Amanda have said, I mean, the only reason we know about this is because two law enforcement agencies ended up in a in a low grade dispute on uh, about the whole matter. Otherwise, we would. I mean, when this happens. And let's just say, because we know that they stepped outside of department guidelines just to even follow this car when they didn't know, <laughs> when they didn't know. And no was, evidence there was a connection the, to a crime. The, exactly. And and so that was a problem. But the only reason we know that that happened is because other law enforcement, Seattle Police Department was involved. Right. And that tells you that. And then the, the uh, supervisor does not report this up the chain of command when it was a clear violation tells you maybe that's a window into how tight of an organization this is, and maybe there's some larger systemic issues that are, have nothing to do with this particular situation. Yes, and I haven't even mentioned that. So the vehicle that they were pursuing so aggressively was being driven by this Seattle police detective who was a black female detective. Some of the protesters and police, SPD, had already flagged this white truck that said, hey, this could, this is possibly being driven by a member of the Proud Boys, this extremely or sometimes violent a right-wing group. So, so this detective's colleague said, okay, run the red light to see if you're being followed. And so she ran the light. The King County officers ran it right behind her. And that's when Seattle police pulled him over for reckless driving, handcuffed one of them, uh, frisked him until they found his badge in, in his pants pockets, and then let him go. And we, and we have, because it was Seattle police, we have body cam footage of it. Exactly. And we have that on our website at KUOW.org. There's a lot. What else? What did what what did I miss? Did we uh, did we cover the significance of this? I, I think we did. I, but I think also the the remaining question is is what is the resolution? These two officers have left since left right. uh, uh, King County uh, Sheriff's Department. 
But I would, I'd be really curious what to see if we ever get access, uh, as Amanda referenced, if we ever get access to, you know, the internal investigation into this. Like, is there a larger problem here? Or is it, I mean, every time that these sort of things happen, one of the standard either implicit or explicit statements is that these were, these were rogue behaviors. These were not, these are not standard behaviors. And we never really sometimes get, right, we never really get to the bottom of whether or not this is actually bad procedure or actually two people. And I would be very curious if we could eventually get to some degree of clarity on that. Yeah, I, I was really taken by how the sheriff's deputy sort of the whole time maintains that he did nothing wrong, um, you know, from the removing the license plates right. to following this vehicle. And I wonder if that's, you know, something, I wonder if that says anything about the culture of policing that, you know, I, I'm doing my job, you know, that means being curious, but you know, is it is it that we're in sort of a new culture now where you have to do what you're assigned? I, I was just sort of wondering this when I was reading it. Yeah, let me, on that point, Amanda, let me play a little piece of audio from that. This is the King County Sheriff's Office, the supervisor in that car, Pat McCurdy, told investigators, as we're about to hear, that if he had been working for Seattle Police that night, he would not even have complained to about about their actions that night. I didn't feel there was any misconduct. And I would not, if I were in that lieutenant's position, have reported it or complained as such. You wouldn't have reported that? No. So to, to um, wrap up the findings, uh, some of the main parts, the investigators did not find that the sheriff's deputies followed the Seattle detective because she was black. They were exonerated on that count. Um, did did not find that they committed the crime of reckless driving, which was a matter of some some controversy. But the reckless driving rules don't apply to law enforcement like they do to the rest of us. Um, so the driver was the the uh, who was the uh, what do you say the whatever not the not the supervisor uh, the sort of the second banana in this incident. That driver got a written reprimand. The supervisor was demoted. And uh, the uh, the supervisor is now a let's see I'm sort of mixing them up. One of them is the is in the private sector. That's the supervisor, I think. And the other who was driving is now a sheriff's deputy in Chelan County, who says that he's angry at his treatment by King County. He appealed the discipline he lost, and he says that well he would have been fired anyway because he also didn't comply with the King County vaccine mandate. Well, there you go. There you go. Okay, so you can it, it's it's a good read. Our reporter Amy Radel laid this out. She talked about it with Angela King on, on our morning show. But you can listen to the audio and or you can read her sort of TikTok description of what happened, along with the investigative findings, along with the body cam video. That's all at our website, KUOW.org. We are going to take a short break and continue with the Week in Review on KUOW. We've got Mike Lewis here from Geek Wire and Josh Farley from the Kitsap Sun and Amanda Zoe from the Seattle Times. We're streaming it on YouTube and Facebook, and we'll be here when you come back right after this. This is KUOW's Week in Review. I'm Bill Radke here with the Seattle Times' Amanda Zoe, Kitsap Sons' Josh Farley, GeekWire's Mike Lewis, and you. And, you know, when we get a bad wildfire season, as we so often do, we hear about controlled burns. They, they happen all the time. Fire officials are preventing or lessening the severity 
of wildfires by burning off some of the undergrowth, the scrub, so there's less fuel for wildfires. But this week, the New York Times ran a story of something that happened in eastern Oregon to demonstrate how that can go wrong. This is about the U.S. Forest Service trying to burn off some brush in the Malheur National Forest next to a private cattle ranch. Josh, you want to take it from there? Sure. Yeah, this story by Mike Baker is just bonkers. Um, The backdrop, of course, Malheur probably sounds familiar to some listeners, kind of a hotbed of anti-federal government sentiment, Mm -hmm. um, where in 2016, Ammon Bundy and an armed militia took over the National Wildlife Refuge. So in, in that backdrop, we have a prescribed burn going on that jumps, you know, basically gets out of control. Not un- it does happen with prescribed burning. This can be somewhat precarious and burned um, some people's property who who called the police and the um, the police found that this was reckless burning and they went and arrested the person they felt responsible who happened to be by the way a U.S. Forest Service supervisor or burn boss. Yep. Um, so yeah i mean i think that um prescribed burns have um have the possibility of spreading of of causing um these kinds of wildfires and of course um all good intentions here um for almost 100 years the u.s forest service was uh, essentially putting out fires at all costs. That was kind of the policy. And now they're trying to get ahead of things with the prescribed burning. But uh, certainly now there is a conflict, a funny kind of an interesting echo from the last story we just talked about, where we had two different law enforcement agencies. In this case, we have local law enforcement versus um, versus either uh, versus federal a federal agency. Um, bizarre set of circumstances. No idea where this story goes from here. I I don't think this has a whole lot to do with, um, you know, prescribed burning. Right? This has much more to do with states' rights. This is what where the argument is, and and you made a good point, Josh, to talk about where this happened. Right? This is the most to talk about a lot of uh, burnable material there, and I'm not talking about the the the, the trees. Right? I mean, this yeah. is <clears throat> an area ready for this sort of conf- conflagration politically as well as uh, literally, and. And in this particular case, you have an area that is very, very anti-federal government that feels like the government steps in too much. Now, now these are also people who are heavily using, and this is the, the weird thing that happens here, right? The people sometimes most dependent on the federal government are the people who resent it the most. And in this particular case, these are all federal lands out there that are used for grazing, that are used for timber rights, a variety of things. So it makes everyone joined at the hip with the federal government because they control most of the land in that area. And in this particular case, the resentment or the type of control that happens from the federal government is really what we're talking about here. Broadly speaking, the burn happens to be the the catalyst for this, but it's not really what the what the deeper issue is. Yeah, this this fire when it jumped this line burned through about twenty acres of this ranch, their timber and grassland. These two the two two sisters co owners, I believe, of the ranch. They came out. They dialed nine one one. As Josh said, there was an arrest. This Grant County Sheriff put the supervisor, the so-called burn boss, in handcuffs right there. And the Forest Service is protesting. And one of these sisters said, well, somebody needed to be accountable. And Amanda, you were saying, well, maybe the sheriff, um, you, you, were, you were wondering about why, why the sheriff uh, made that uh, handcuff and arrest right there on the spot. 
Yeah, and I was just looking at the story uh, to make sure this was true, but they put the Forest Service guy while they were still like managing the fire. Like that happened before the fire situation was resolved. Right, uh, right. took him off the job there. Right. Yeah. So I, I, you know, one reading is you know this was so maybe you know the motions were so heated that you know the sheriff was you know sympathetic to the landowners. And, and but the other the other situation I was wondering was well maybe the sheriff just wanted to get him out of the situation like maybe he wanted to deescalate it somehow mm-hmm. um, you know I, I don't know what actually happened but it was clearly a very heated encounter. Well, yeah. I would also steer things a little bit. I, I if I can push back on you a little bit, Mike. I I do think a conversation around this, not necessarily in this way, but around prescribed burns. This um, we have seen this the Bolt Creek fire, and then of course we had a whole bunch of wildfires that right right there at the end. You know, at our very dramatic turn from summer into fall this year, where it was 81 day and seemingly the rains were back. We had quite a few fires burning, but the Bolt Creek fire had been burning for some time. And of course, we know that a consumptive strategy, quote unquote, was used um, and to try to make our forests healthier. And this is a, a really it, we're, we're hearing about these more and more. Um, and um, the Forest Service has taken some criticism, uh, also, according to Baker's piece in the New York Times, we have in April um, two of fires that joined together that constituted the largest uh, you know, wildfire in the state of New Mexico's history, I believe, um, were caused under prescribed burns and caused a suspension of that program. So, I mean, I do think that there could be some um, there and there will be some additional scrutiny on uh, how best to perform these prescribed burns. Just wanted to throw that out there. Oh, no, I agree with you 100 percent. I'm not suggesting that this is not that someone doesn't have a right or at least an issue with the way prescribed burns are handled. And obviously, the federal government has a responsibility to do these sort of burns because we have a lot of people living in proximity to a lot of land that hasn't burned through in a long time because we've been at times historically too effective at fighting fires and stopping them from doing the standard burn through that would happen in a regular uh, unregulated cycle. But but I would also say that that these same sort of disputes happen with grazing rights, right? And it happens with the prescribed burns. It happens with every intersection between landowners in, out in the West who see themselves in a certain way and the federal government that controls most of the land in the West. By far, the bulk of the land in the West is controlled by either the BLM or the Forest Service or the Park Service to some smaller degree, certainly the Interior Department. Those are the type of things that we're finding increasingly are becoming, they're becoming proxies for this larger argument. And the larger argument being, what right do we have as taxpayers on federal land, given that we're funding this land? And what right do the, do, do the feds have on restricting our access to this land? And that is the sort of the core thing. And that's happened with the grazing rights thing with the Bundys, because that wasn't about a prescribed burn, but it was every bit the same dynamics of the argument. Absolutely. Yeah, I think you're both saying true things. You're giving the background and then you, the unique, in this case, the unique situation of a burn, a, a fire that can jump out of control. I mean, basically, I think this, um, these ranchers are saying, yes, a f- because a federal employee doing their job has qualified immunity. But I think these ranch owners are arguing that, yeah, letting my private private property burn, though, is not— Should not be part of the— It's not part <laughs> of your job description. Yeah, exactly. But that's not usually—we don't expect an arrest out of that. I would, I would have expected—even uh, if, if the government were had to pay the ranch owner whatever— I don't know what 20 acres of, of scrub uh, is worth, but, but, but not an arrest. And that—we're uh, still waiting to see what happens with this 
um, exactly. for this burn boss. All right. Well, let's let's pause there on that story on Week in Review on KUOW. And now I, I, I just wanted to get a read. And we've talked about this before, so I, I, I don't I don't know that we'll we'll spend so much time on it today. But I heard we, we saw a story about some. Let me let me give the background here. So, you know, when racial justice protesters were calling for cuts to the Seattle Police Department in the summer of 2020, the city council responded by moving parking enforcement officers to the transportation department. Now, Seattle's mayor, Bruce Harrell, wants to move them back, parking enforcement back within the Seattle Police Department, and some advocates are angry about it. I want to check in with you since I have a panel of journalists here to just remind listeners what was the move about and what is the big deal? Because someone listening might think, so I get a parking ticket. Why do I care what color their hat is? Um, So starting us off, who can tell me, remind us why parking enforcement was moved from the Seattle Police Department to Transportation Department? I, I can jump in if you'd like. The the I mean the broadly speaking, it was moved over there because there was an idea about law enforcement. It, the bigger backdrop, of course, was the whole defund police movement. But within that was has there been mission creep from from local law enforcement, particularly in this case, the Seattle Police Department. The Seattle Police itself, the uh, officers have complained about that they're doing a lot of mental health issues because the county, because we can't actually provide the mental health services that are needed, that there's a lot of things that are moving beyond the scope of regular law enforcement. And so some people at the city council took them at their word and said, all right, well, how about if we take away parking enforcement and you won't have to use your bandwidth on that? But the downside on that politically was that it took away also a massive source of revenue <laughs> that was flowing through the police department into the city. Secondly, when you make an agency smaller, you do lose some political power in City Hall. And I think those two things are why law enforcement wanted it back. But the one question I had here, and maybe somebody else can answer this, if you move, if you moved, they, so they moved the parking enforcement to, to Seattle Department of Transportation. And they were supposed to start handling that, which does some make some logical sense. I mean, I've seen it happen in both in both ways in cities. But the question for me was, and this one hasn't been answered, was the were the was the the parking enforcement arm of Seattle PD was that a bed for recruitment of officers? Because that's we're dealing with that as well, like a, a severe shortage in officers. And did people generally move from parking enforcement into the regular ranks of SPD? And in which case? There is a good reason to move it back. If that actually was a pathway to becoming a, a cop in Seattle. And oh, you didn't say bad for enforcement. You said be, a, a, a way right. a, 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 for recruitment. Right, way, exactly. In other words, path. in other words, did people move from parking enforcement into uh, being a fully sworn peace officer? Yeah. And if that was a pathway, you could see why Seattle Police Department would want that back if that was a hotbed for them for recruitment. Hmm. I don't know that for sure, but my guess is no. Um, just because Seattle parking has like its own officers guild, like they have their own union. Right. Um, I don't know. I, I, I do know they have some sort of authority that's granted upon them from being a part of law enforcement, but I don't, I don't know if I've seen that raised before in, in, in reporting. I haven't seen it raised at all, but I've talked to a couple of, uh, poli- well, quite a few police officers in my time, 20 years in Seattle. And some have said that they actually started in parking enforcement. And I thought, well, that's interesting. I didn't know that that was necessarily a traditional pathway. And it could be that it isn't and that it doesn't really apply much in terms of, you know, 
a ready supply of potential new officers for the Seattle Police Department. But in terms of the impetus for doing this, perception or reality, don't they, don't our parking enforcers in Seattle still wear, say, the SPD insignia? It doesn't that. So I wonder about just sort of communicating to the public. um, Has it has that sort of message actually changed if they still look the same they don't have anything sort of the the government is the government the whether it's tra- coming from transportation or the police here i mean don't they look the same <laughs> no i know that transition was never really done like if you get a citation on your dashboard it still says spd mm-hmm. Right, and didn't they have to at one point forgive a whole bunch of tickets yes. because they didn't yes. grant the, the authority <laughs> over to uh, to SDOT yes. uh, when they moved the they, which, which they was great because I think tickets. I had a ticket forgiven in that particular <laughs> process. Yeah, these parking enforcement officers, they left Seattle Police. They did not get the proper authority to write these tickets. Here's a little more information about how a couple different perspectives on this. This is the president of the Parking Enforcement Officers Guild. Amanda mentioned they have their own union. Uh, Chris Ann Sapp says there are lots of reasons why they want to move back to Seattle Police Department. One is that they would have access to information they don't have in Transportation Department, like the vehicle owner's history, information like aggression toward law enforcement. But she says the main reason is a matter of identity, and they identify as law enforcement. Uh, Whoops, wrong button. I will. Here's that audio. They identify as law enforcement. Our daily job, our body of work, is more in alignment with what Seattle Police Department officers do. We are an enforcement arm. We are non-sworn civilian employees, but we do go out and issue citations based on the Seattle Municipal Code. Meanwhile, some racial justice activists are unhappy with Mayor Harrell's proposal. Trey Thompson Wiley is a community organizer with Creative Justice who spent that summer of 2020 organizing protests and says with parking enforcement being in the Seattle Police Department, black and brown communities especially and indigenous communities are more harmed by policing. I felt that it was a huge betrayal to the many protesters that came out, the overall folks who would be impacted by this. Something that impacts them in every day, it doesn't mean as much to the mayor's office. So this is, I believe, a uh, included, is this a budget proposal that's that's going to be part of what the city council is going back and forth with the mayor on? So this is, we're still waiting to hear how this moves through the gears? That's my understanding. And, and I think it's likely to happen. I mean, especially if the mayor is behind it. Uh, it it's going to be interesting to see if there's any pushback. I imagine this will become a subject of a bit of city hall horse trading uh, when, when we come down to budget, actual budget time, because I think that there is some sensitivity on certain city council members that this was a promise of moving this outside of the scope of law enforcement. And now that it's being moved back in, I would imagine there's going to be a little bit of uh, pushback. Yeah. And I could be wrong about that. Maybe this is an executive action, what you do with, with the ticket writing, but not sure about that. I know our next topic is a matter of budget proposal and is going to be before City Hall. We're going to take a short break and, among other things, talk about who is Who's better at their job, uh, graffiti painters or graffiti removers? Who's, who's, who's quicker on the draw? That's when we take a short break and come right back with Week in Review. You're listening to KUOW's Week in Review. 
I'm Bill Radke. You've probably seen my name on freeway overpasses and uh, and signs, boarded up windows. The Seattle's original tagger. Yes. And uh, that's GeekWire contributing editor Mike Lewis. We've got Kitsap Sun Military and Bremerton reporter Josh Farley and Seattle Times general assignment reporter Amanda Zoe bringing you Week in Review. So, yes, to that point, uh, we're going to talk about graffiti now because Seattle's mayor has a new plan to address this surge of graffiti in the city that we've all seen. KUOW reporter Mike Davis told us this week that Mayor Harrell is calling on multiple city departments to address it. He's asking residents to help. We're going to enhance our volunteer programming and coordination. Building on experience from anti-graffiti volunteers, our plan will include up to 1,000 graffiti abatement kits. These kits will contain all the tools necessary to clean up graffiti. In Wallingford, Denise Chase has already started these efforts. I now have my paint and my rollers, and when I walk by, I just get rid of it. And I must say that they're getting a little tired of me. I have a little more time and a little more paint than the taggers do. The city will launch a new day of caring in each district starting in 2023 to bring volunteers and community groups together to beautify neighborhoods. A new day of caring and a lot of paint. Mike Lewis, do you think this will work? Will Seattle become noticeably less tagged? No. I don't think it'll. I don't think. I mean, it never does. the The idea about graffiti abatement is sort of you know the old line about painting the Golden Gate Bridge is once you start, you know, once you get to the end, you just go back and start it all over again. That's been the history of graffiti abatement. I think that when we have more people out walking around, you'll find it diminishing considerably because they'll be walking because they're witnesses to graffiti exactly i mean you know graffiti doesn't tend to happen while we're all standing around looking at it right it tends to happen when we're not and i think with the with the more people working from home fewer people in downtown and some of the areas hardest hit it was a lack of foot traffic that actually led to a lot of this i think when that improves along with the graffiti abatement crews then you may see sort of a leveling off but i don't know they're pretty uh, i mean i haven't seen a lack of graffiti in this town and i've been here 22 years my guess is it's going to continue. Amanda, you're smiling. I just feel like this issue is like, it's so cat and mouse. Like, it's like almost like the classic, like, oh, the government's going to come get you kids for, you know, spray painting my sign. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I feel like, you know, politically graffiti is an easy target. You know, it's very easy to say we're doing something about it. Like, look at the paint, look at the rollers. Um, I, I just also wonder, like, how do they intend to quantify the amount of graffiti and like, you know, whether, you know, are we going to know for sure whether there's going to be any success on this? Well, and also the standard between graffiti we want and graffiti we don't. Right. I mean, because there yeah. is absolutely graffiti out there that I see is like, this is beautiful. And I wouldn't. And it's better than what the maybe the city would have done in that same spot. And then it becomes sort of a judgment call. I mean, a lot of what we're dealing with also is not classic graffiti or the the uh, uh, some of the larger, more elaborate murals, we're dealing with tagging, right? And that's really one of the big problems in graffiti that I don't think has tremendous support, at least from the artistic community, doesn't have as much, much support there. Yeah. yeah, I would bring up a, a Bremerton example, since that's where I'm reporting from. This morning, actually, I was out at the Free Public Art Wall doing some filming that we have in town. This great collaboration. It allows for people to have creative expression and um, and I do like um, some of the elements of this new program of really focusing on the art versus tagging right there's there's definite difference and I hate to be this person but I'm totally going to do it 
I'm going to bring up broken windows theory. Um, can't really help it here. I'm sure many people are familiar with the broken windows theory and the I- idea of that. I am not. Which is that just briefly, if you take care of the little stuff like that, then then sure. it helps it helps and, decay and crime from cascading. Right. And I and I don't want to I'm not talking about broken windows policing here or the the way in which, you know, Giuliani went after the turnstile jumpers and early 90s New York, I believe, and all of that. I'm talking more about just the idea of if you see some trash, if you see a broken window, if you see some tagging and uh, the idea being that I think there is something conscious or subconscious. And I notice this because I tend to do things like take a trash bag with me and clean up trash in, in my town. Um, I've noticed that when areas are um, pretty well kept, that I think people are less likely to treat the community as a trash can. Um, I think that there is um, this expectation. I, I think that so- something about it um, does um, there's a there's a pride issue, I think, for, for people, as we heard from um, the woman who was going out with um, her rollers and that. Um, but 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 on the flip side, I, I, I certainly love community art and I want that art um, all over my town. And I, I love seeing it in Seattle and elsewhere. So um, I, I think that um, sometimes these efforts can be be positive, too. And the lady with the paint and the rollers said she's wearing them down. <laughs> yeah. They're getting sick of me. I've, I got too much time on my hands. You better have that attitude because they will absolutely be uh, be trying to wear her down in the same manner. Yeah, I, I'm, I'm curious. Just on the politics, Amanda, you, I'm curious. You said that the graffiti is kind of an easy an easy thing for politicians to get to get credit for attacking. So you don't think that politicians will pay a price if they if, as Mike said, it doesn't do any good. Well, I mean. They have like an excuse lined up, which is, yeah. you know, the graffiti artists are more determined than us. Mm. Right. Yeah. No, that that's true. And I mean, no one really, I think, expects it to go away. But I do think they expect <laughs> uh, expect a fight, <laughs> at least not to go down swinging or go down painting, I guess, as the case may be. Yeah. Oh, well, since I brought it to elections and here we're, we're about to get toward the end of the show. I, I and we all, I always ask, um, you know, do you have, is there anything making you hopeful, making you smile this week? Uh, I do have some some comments from listeners about the elections, and I did wonder as journalists, are you smiling about the election, the election almost being over, or do you just have a pit in your stomach, or would, or anything you want to tell uh, listeners here as they may be filling out their bubbles while they're listening to you? Uh, Let's well, just I'll, let them decide. Uh, yeah. right? Okay. Let the people are filling out their bubbles. Let's let them concentrate. Absolutely, their bubbles are their business. Okay. Um, I, I think that. Uh, I mean, I don't know that I have necessarily. I'm always I wait to see what happens, right? So I don't have. I guess I, every election somehow seems more fraught than the last one, yeah. at least in the last uh, you know ten years or so. But I would also say that one thing that that is interesting for me is going to be is the elect upcoming decision about ranked choice voting i think that for me is something i'm paying a lot of attention to because i'm curious i think i don't know the information about it is a little bit uneven about whether it works whether it does it what it accomplishes but i'm kind of interested in the experiment Mm -hmm. i mean i thought that seattle was going to change much more than it did when we went to district city council elections from what and it doesn't feel to me all that different as a result but I'm very curious about the ranked choice voting. I think wondering how that is going to actually affect should we should that get approved. But I think it's going to be I it seems like it might be approved. And so if that's the case, I'm kind of curious to see how that is going to work. Yeah. 
Yeah, curious too. I asked uh, our community feedback club, do, are you voting any differently from usual? You talked about how elections have, they have a different feel these days. So I wondered, are you, are you voting differently? Lisa from the Central District said, I'm gradually moving from far left to center left. I used to look at the stranger endorsements to see who to vote for. Now I look at them to see who not to vote for. I didn't support the way we treated the police in this town. I'm done with the lawlessness. I'm beyond done with cancel culture and wokeism. Uh, this, uh, this, uh, another Lisa, I take it says I'm voting the same as ever. True blue people over profits, workers' rights, women's rights, corporate responsibility, truth and transparency in politics and government, patriotism and belief in democracy. No more big lies. Nikki in South Seattle says, yes, I'm voting the same way, filling out my ballot and taking to a drop off box location. But if there are people loitering there, I'll drive to a different location. And by the way, you can join our uh, community feedback group by just texting the word club. And here's the phone number, 206-926-9955, Text the word club. Just a couple more. Ingrid, lifelong Democrat, lives in Greenwood, works downtown, says, I'm so tired of the feeling of lawlessness in Seattle. I'm actively finding the most conservative candidates I can live with. I feel like our city's gone too far left. Our compassion is leading to chaos. Kurt is still voting Democratic, but, quote, I'm frustrated that Democrats are caving into right-wing talking points around policing out of a misguided sense that somehow that's moderate. The appeals on abortion feel less heartfelt and more corporate and survey-driven. So once again, I'm voting for the party that shoots itself in the foot because it's not the party of hanging Mike Pence. (laughs) And Brandon in Ballard says, I'll keep voting for Democrats, but this time they won't disappoint me because I expect nothing from them. Wow. Anything to add, Joshua or Amanda? I don't think I can top those. Yeah. <laughs> or anything making you smile. Always well, I, well, of course. Yeah, I'm, I'm okay. always happy to contribute there. Yeah. Um, uh, maybe the elections don't make uh, don't make for smiling material for me as much. But um, I saw the piece in the Seattle Times, I believe, about the 68-year-old volunteer that loves to go out and cut ivy off of trees. Yes, I'm, I saw that. I am a big proponent of that, and that made me smile this week. I, I appreciate that uh, gentleman's efforts to um, make the community better. The Ivy has a big, can take a big toll on our Northwest conifers, and uh, I loved I loved seeing that. And so Josh, yeah. you said you carry a trash bag around and and pick up trash. Do you also oh, cool. have a big pair of shears in your pocket? Flippers <laughs> too. Yeah. If you guys could see me, I wear a big suit that has many pockets that I put. No, I don't. Um, like the human Swiss Army knife or something. No. Um, but I I do like getting out into into the woods and and helping with that. And I know a lot of volunteers in, um, in Kitsap County that do that. I know there's an entire Ivy League. They are not not <laughs> no Ivy League. I think it's called out of portland um and uh, so we're banding together against the invasive species that are trying to take over our our forests and so i when i see that kind of work being done that's uh, sometimes it goes unnoticed but it deserves huge kudos because um it's very important work so that makes me smile i moved into my uh, home a, a dozen years ago and tackled the the unkempt ivy and now it's left this ghost Oh, uh, yes. structure above because mm-hmm. you cut it down below. Right. So it starves the beast. And then you just have 
dead ivy that's actually yeah. very artistic. Well, <laughs> Much but, like graffiti. But, is it art or is it dead ivy? Exactly. That's right. But be careful with that because, you know, if they grow back, they will re-inhabit all of that stuff and just make it. It'll be night and day before you know it. They'll be right back at it. You got to keep yeah. you got to keep on it, Bill. You all can't right. you can, cannot you know, give up. And never rest. Every movie that has some sort of dystopian you know, future has ivy growing all over everything. I mean, it's actually a load-bearing pillar, this oh, yeah. idea of, of, you know, post-Armageddon. And okay. actually, there's a graffiti connection because that's one way to, to discourage graffiti is to let ivy grow everywhere. So we've tied them together. Amanda, anything making you hopeful or smiley today? This yes, week? and it's that Taylor Swift is going back on tour. And this morning, she announced a second Seattle date. Um, so it's, it's pretty much all I'm talking about with my friends this week. Joni Mitchell, Dave Chappelle and Chris Rock, uh, Taylor Swift, it's all happening in Seattle. It's almost as if Seattle's not dead, Mike. (laughs) Which is what was making me smile. It's nice to see Mike Baker, whose story we talked about, the terrific story uh, on the the fight over the the, uh, prescribed burning, also did a piece, contributed to this larger piece in the New York Times a couple of weeks ago, about a week ago, on how downtowns, which were purportedly all dying as the result of the working from home and and other reasons during the pandemic, apparently are not. And that Seattle hotel traffic is back up to pre-pandemic levels. The Pike Market, if you go down there on a weekend, and it's it's nice. It looks every bit as crowded and annoying as before. And I love the Pike Market. That's not to say that I don't, (laughs) but it is definitely like just just this clot of people down there. And, And But that is actually what the businesses down there depend on. And also, that is what makes a downtown seems somewhat lively. I'm not sure it's going to come back to exactly what it was. I think downtowns are changing, but at least, you know, the story was somewhat hopeful as opposed to uh, certain stories or quasi-documentaries that said Seattle is dying. I, I think that that is absolutely not true. Yeah, and that's the beauty of cities is they rise and fall and recreate themselves and they continue to bring, you know, bring us together. And the pandemic, just to come back to what we talked about at the start of the show, come full circle here, you know, I think... Um, showed us that we are still social creatures and we crave being a part of community and being together. Well, that's why I'm so glad that you join us every week on Week in Review. And just to maintain that connection, that human connection, Mike, I want to tell you that I don't care whether you or anyone likes candy corns or Whoppers. And I don't care who calls Pike, Pike Place Market, whatever they call it, is okay with me. But if I don't tell you that it's not Pike Market, that it's Pike Place Market, I will get kidnapped. I'll yes. be abducted. I understand and that. terrible things can happen to me. So I understand that. Yeah. We're, I stand we're, corrected. <laughs> no. We're, we stand together on Weekend Review. <laughs> My, Mike Lewis, GeekWire contributing editor. And that's Josh Farley, Kitsap Sun Military and Bremerton reporter. Amanda Zoe, Seattle Times general assignment reporter. Uh, good luck with the ivy and the graffiti and, and the candy. And thank you, everybody, for being the show this week. And goodbye as well. And see you soon. You've been listening to Week in Review on KUOW. And, um, you know, the show is produced by Kevin Kniestet. And social media and live streaming are made possible by Juan Pablo Chiquiza and Tio Popescu. And Bernard Ouellette makes it all sound great on the board. Thanks, everybody. And uh, have a great week. Wow, it's going to be post-election next week. Lots to talk about. Join us then. At a time when information continues to come at us faster and faster, sometimes you need to hit pause. And rewind. 
NPR's Throughline takes you back in time to the source of the news stories filling your feed. Find NPR's Throughline wherever you get your podcasts.